A quick disclaimer. This episode is epic and has rare content, but it might be a little bit complicated as we just did a dive right into the depth of the topic. Also, for time reasons, we talked way less about the webs of trust than we wanted. But you can look forward with excitement because we decided to do a whole podcast series on these topics starting soon. We will go chapter by chapter through the book The Order of Freedom, The Only Principle That Can Save the World by Oliver Janich. So every concept builds on each other in a structured way and you can understand it easily. I can encourage you to listen to this episode anyway because one, this can already open your mind to new connections and two, because the vibes are high. And with that, welcome to Be The Change. Bitcoin Standard Psychology and Business, your podcast to awaken the Giga Chat within. Today I have a very special guest, Thorsten the Legend. Why is he a legend? Because first of all, he's a Bitcoiner and we are all fucking legends. Second of all, because he talks about a topic on every meetup that I met him so far that is not very often discussed in the Bitcoin space which I think is very important. Actually, a few topics that work with each other and they revolve very much around the question of what kind of governance structures will there be left on the Bitcoin standard? Will there be any government left or will there be no government at all? Will it be private cities? And how would that even work? How would the security system, how would police work, how would infrastructure work, the law system, these are still very valuable functions in society and we need many of them still, but how would that look like on a Bitcoin standard without a state? And the topics that really make this clear to anyone who is interested in that is the theory and practice of private justice order, or one could say a natural legal system. Another description would be private only court system, security and insurance system that is emerging from a free market. These are the main components that Torsten talked to me about. And out of that arises another topic that will make sure that even the edge cases and very fine detailed transactions and interactions are being taken care of. And this topic is prediction markets. Little spoiler, there will be an economy of headhunters in the future, <laughs> very likely. So if that sounds interesting to you, definitely listen all through the episode. And then finally, this whole conversation, we will add the cherry on top with talking about webs of trust, decentralized webs of trust, because in order to enable these conflict resolution markets and security markets and prediction markets that will give even more detailed market information for even for edge cases and very specific interactions and conflicts and truth-finding processes, we need neutral judges. We go into the concept of neutral judges and why that is important later. But in order to determine who is a good neutral judge for a conflict, we need to have some kind of reputation score that all parties that are included in the conflict can rely on to pick under which conflict resolution judge they want to work on this conflict. So... Webs of trust will be very important for that. And to bring it back to the main topic of this podcast in general, because it's Be the Change, Bitcoin Standard, Psychology and Business, in order for business to happen on the Bitcoin Standard, in order for online business to happen, we will need some kind of trust and reputation scores that are reliable as well, because we don't have the intermediaries who can pull back our funds. So these are highly important topics that are not discussed enough in the Bitcoin community as far as I'm seeing it. And I'm really happy that I met Torsten on some of the meetups. And I'm really excited about it because 
sometimes it's really funny to listen to some other podcasts where they're like, it seems like they're pretty clueless about how the future could look like in terms of governance structures. I would prefer calling it organization as a service structures. And I'm really happy that Thorsten brought some light so far and will bring you, bring us some, some more light on this whole topic because there are some answers out there already and we just need to focus on them. And I'm really excited to now, after a long intro, welcome <laughs> Thorsten, the legendary prediction market guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Very happy to be here, honestly. It's, it's an honor to be on a podcast for the first time and we'll see how it goes. I think the comment you brought up about listening to other podcasts and being a bit skeptical about their about their solutions for governance structures is is interesting i think and as you said there are really interesting solutions out there that should be considered yes yes and how about we just dive right into it and maybe you can explain what is a private justice order or in other words a free market for conflict resolution and security how would that work the way i explain it most of the time is because most people can't imagine a world without a state a stateless society i pretty much say how about we privatize all the quote services that the state provides and put them in competition with each other. So we have services like protection and conflict resolution, like the courts do right now, more or less. And if you basically put those, if you basically privatize those services, put them into companies, and because I think that is what's going to happen if we have no state because people want to have those services. They demand those services. And that's why there will be those services because of the principles of the market. Somebody wants to provide those services to make a profit. and Natural incentives. Yes, exactly. And the way it works is basically you have companies that want to provide those services. They want to provide good services. And... They stand in competition with each other. And if you have services like conflict resolution, that basically means that you have court companies or conflict resolution companies, because that's basically all they do. And those companies then try to resolve some conflicts if, if two parties come and want to get their conflicts resolved. And if you take other services like policing or... How about schooling or education? Some governments have picked up those services for themselves and are monopolizing those. And that's not really a good thing, as we already see in Germany. And yeah, that's basically all it is to privatize services that the government, in quotation marks, provides. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's a good overview. And the question that most people will probably ask is, who will pay for that? And how do we pay for that? Because do I pay like when I get robbed and then I go to some private police and say, here is some money, please find the thief or... Or that would be funny, right? If you only pay once you're robbed. I don't think that it will happen that way because most people already know in advance that they might need those services. Then they will set up contracts with those companies that provide the services and then they will pay because they want those services. If they didn't want those services, they wouldn't pay. One example of that would basically be wars, right? Who wants wars? Who would voluntarily... And who would pay for war? Yes, exactly. Which company would provide a service that is basically war? And who would voluntarily pay for this? I don't think anyone would. Not with their own money, at least. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's, that's basically the point. If you are responsible by yourself and you have to pick services for yourself and don't outsource it to some monopoly then you are very picky with your choices. And then you will basically only pay for the services that are good enough for you. 
and that will be the companies that provide good service. And that will naturally let order emerge in society because it's just an expression of the needs of the people. Because a market is only a medium where supply and demand are meeting. And of course, we can be very individual beings, but we also have a lot in common, a lot of basic human needs. And these are the principles and the patterns that are emerging everywhere around the world because a market is just an expression of, hey, we need this to live in peace. And here are some people competing for providing it, making sure that there is no monopoly on it. And what would be an example of a security service that one would pay for in advance? Let's see. Robbing would be such a service, I guess. Government is supposed to prevent robbing from happening, but may maybe it doesn't do it so well as we want to. And if you basically want, don't want to get robbed, then you, will, you want to look for a company that has good ideas on how to prevent this. Maybe it's not even by force. That's the thing. The government is often trying to do it by force, but the one method I also heard is by using psychology and such things to maybe discourage robbings from happening. And to come back to Bitcoin, which is very important, if we are on the Bitcoin standard, it's very hard to be poor. Because currently, it's uh, I guess it's, Love it. I guess it sounds pretty pretty harsh, but oh, yeah, absolutely. in the current environment, it's pretty easy to be poor if you do nothing. And because a certain amount gets taken by the government already, then there are taxes companies have to pay, then everything becomes more expensive, and so on. If you we are talking right now about a stateless society, if there is no state, there will be no taxes. And if we don't have fiat currency, then there will be no inflation. We don't have to pay the inflation tax, basically. And that will make things very inexpensive, I think. And as I said, it will be hard to be poor because it will be fairly easy to make at least some amount of money to survive. And that will at least prevent robbings from happening for a certain amount But I guess that's the point of markets. If there is demand, then there will be supply. So if people demand safety from robbings, then somebody will think of something to prevent this. If it's false, if it's not, the best thing that will work will survive in the market. It's, I think, pretty simple. And if you break it down into these components, supply and demand, it's pretty straightforward, I think. Okay, let's make it a bit more specific for the robbing case because I 100% agree that on a Bitcoin standard, in the long term, there will be probably just naturally no robbing at all because it just is disincentivized or let's say like just a tiny fraction of what is there currently. But let's say for the next 50 years, maybe 100 years, there will be still some leftovers of robbing, of violent crimes and so on. And this case, in this case, you would make sure that you compare different approaches, different private security companies, and then you pick the one that has the best sounding approach to you and the best offer. And in this case, you would give them money in advance. But what about insuring yourself? Wouldn't it be much more easy because it's such a rare occasion that crime will happen that we bring in insurance companies as well? to make sure that the cost of security will, will go down even lower. Yes. Just as an example, if the service of the security company is to prevent robbery by patrolling the neighborhood more frequently. Yeah, or just patrolling the neighborhood at, at all <laughs> <laughs> compared to now. <laughs> yeah, I think insurance is a pretty good point because if you're paying in advance and maybe nothing will happen, then that's not really that great because nobody wants to pay for something that, pay for a service that wasn't really provided because nothing happened. And that's where insurance companies can come in. That's pretty much correct. Then you will have a contract with your insurance company and basically what will happen, the insurance company will sort out the specifics for you, like now the state does in some way. But the difference is, again, competition. And the thing that also I should mention, I think, is that if you have multiple 
security companies in the same area and multiple companies have patrolling people around the place. I think it would be weird if somebody would get robbed, but a lot of patrolling people were there, but not the patrolling people from the company that this guy had contract with. That would be pretty weird. So then there's the question, what do these guys do? Do they intervene or do they not? I think the pretty logical thing here would be that, yes, there would be insurance and the insurance company would have not one contract, but maybe a few contracts with a few security companies that have people patrolling the area or doing some other thing that would intervene also if they don't have the contract with the exact same person. And it would be also pretty weird if the security guys have to check first on an iPad or something like that. Is this guy in short? Yes? No? Will I help him? Yes? No? So I think there will also be the policy, if there is something, help him, regardless if he is insured by us or not, because I don't think that people will buy insurance services if they know that they wouldn't help other people that weren't insured on the spot. Yes. Yes. That's. I think that will be part of the contracts, definitely. And Another incentive that plays in here is as well that insurance companies will probably give out bounties on finding robbers, on finding criminals. So security company of person A will still benefit from catching the criminal who is affecting person B who is not at the same security company, right? Yes, yes, good point, I think. That makes sense. If there's... A robber that's affecting everyone, then it isn't really important who catches him or who doesn't, right? So that will also be a market, right? Headhunters. That sounds scary at first, if you're still in deep into the propaganda. But once you go deeper into the explanations, you will find out that the Wild West, where they had headhunters as well, was probably not as wild as they want you to believe. I would love you to explain some some of the dynamics that are around headhunters. Yeah, so basically it would make sense for an insurance company or a security company to outsource the service of catching bad guys. So if there is somebody on the loose that shouldn't be on the loose, then it would make sense for some company to put out some amount of money that the person who will catch this guy will get, basically... It won't be the case that catch him alive or dead, but catch, catch, him, <laughs> catch him rather alive than dead. Because it wouldn't really make sense to catch somebody dead, right? That somebody couldn't be prosecuted yes. and so on. So it wouldn't really be that dangerous because it wouldn't make sense to catch people dead. Yeah, that, I want to go into, into that point a bit deeper because that's a very interesting dynamic as well, an interesting incentive dynamic. Just in, if you really think for you, humanity as a whole, every living being that can contribute to the, to the wealth of everyone by working is better than if that person is dead. So even if a criminal has done some bad shit, there is still the incentive to keep that person alive because that person can still work. For example, to, uh, of course, in jail or in some confined space, but that person can still have the option to work to pay off the court and the insurance costs to then lower his time in jail. So every person who is caught alive is worth more than a person that is caught dead. So the natural incentives are just aligned to, to be as human as possible, as humanitarian as possible within prosecution. Yes, Yes, but I think there are still some edge cases that will happen. So if somebody doesn't want to work, no, no matter what happens and causes all sorts of trouble, then that's pretty bad. But as you already said, that there are still incentives to figure out how to persuade this uh, somebody that causes so much trouble to be useful. Right, So again, it doesn't have to be by force, could be psychological, but all these people that are so bad and are basically locked up behind bars, they could do useful work. And in some places, governments are trying to do exactly this to not keep too many people in jail, but that's not as far as it can go right now. The incentives are basically pretty huge to 
make somebody do something useful. Yes, and these these are the very rare, rare edge cases. I think the statistics are that like 3% or something of the criminals cause about 50% of all the crime. And we're not even talking about politicians here. Uh, <laughs> there is pro probably 1% of all people causing 90% of the crime or more. So these rare edge cases, if they are prosecuted with the efficiency of a free market, we will have instantaneously half as much crime. Yes. Already. Yes. And if you also think that there are so much people that are doing so so many bad things that aren't even caught or nobody knows that they are doing bad things, that is basically where today's conspiracy theories come in, right? So I guess then the detectives would come back. The really good detectives that search for bad things, that are good at pattern recognition and, and so on. That would be also pretty useful, I think. It's so funny. It's so funny. Like everyone is like admiring Sherlock Holmes and like good detectives who are basically doing nothing else than uncovering conspiracies. Yes. <laughs> kind of every crime is some some sort of conspiracy. Even if it's just one person, I'm conspiring against someone else. Sherlock Holmes gets idolized or looked at highly, but as soon as it becomes politically dangerous for the ruling class, for the suppressors, then suddenly uncovering conspiracies becomes, yeah, you're getting, yeah. getting punished for that. Yeah, exactly. And a free private justice order would bring back the honor or the appreciation for detective work, which kind of everyone who is going down the, even the Bitcoin rabbit hole is some kind of detective I would say. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I think that I think also there is demand already for such people to search for things because there are so many conspiracy theories floating around everywhere. Somebody should sometime clear all this up to know what is real, what is true, what is false and so on. Yeah. And right now the financial incentives are just stacked against the detectives. They're just basically doing it out of moral because it feels right to them because they have to do it. Yeah. And while at the same time bringing themselves into danger, just as whistleblowers like Julian Assange are doing. And um, I don't know if that's maybe too fast of a jump right now to go into prediction markets already, but I think this fits neatly because th there will be a completely different dynamic around whistleblowers in prediction markets. So... Maybe you can explain some basics about prediction markets and then go to the example of whistleblowers, why that is going to be way better. Yeah, I think to understand prediction marks first, we have to look a bit into finance and what prediction marks are currently used, maybe. I guess most people know the word futures or shorting something. Basically, what you're doing in this case is betting on the future price of something and then, in, dependent on which case is then eventually true, you could make a profit or you would lose money. But those things, those prediction marks that are used today are pretty specific, especially in finance. Those predictions are only really for assets and for future prices. But in theory, you could make prediction markets on basically anything. You could imagine a prediction, set an end time for that prediction when this should resolve, if this prediction came true or if it's false. And then... Just one example. You could say the presidency of Donald Trump will not have changed anything meaningful in terms of the indicators XYZ until the end of his office in 2020. It could be pretty much any event And you just have to see, does it occur or does it not occur? Or you could even go even more specific, not just black and white, yes or no, but maybe in between states. And you can do very complex contracts around that as well. Yeah, I think to explain this maybe a bit simpler, to keep it simple, there are a few ways to implement prediction markets, but I think a pretty simple one is basically betting. If you have a prediction, mm -hmm. Trump's presidency didn't, didn't change anything. And you want to determine, is, is this going to be true or is this going to be 
is this going to be false? And then you let people basically bet on this prediction. You have yes. you have a bucket, and in this bucket there goes the money of of the people that are betting. There are basically two halves of the bucket. One half is for the votes that did say the prediction is going to be true, and the other one is if the prediction is going to be false. And if Donald Trump did change something, then the people that said the, predict the prediction became false, I think, because the prediction says it didn't change anything, then those people would get the whole bucket of money, and the people that voted the other way don't get anything. That's basically what happens behind the scenes. And that way, if you bet on the correct option, you make a profit. And if you bet on the wrong option, you make a loss. I think it's pretty simple to explain it that way because there are also other ways to implement it to create shares that pay out if the prediction becomes true. But then you have to have liquidity in the market and people that want to trade. And if there isn't enough liquidity, then you get all sorts of problems. If you would short, let's say, shorting the stock of Tesla or whatever, or let's say of Credit Suisse, <laughs> if you're shorting that stock, you could either go through the financial institutions and do it the traditional way where you borrow, I think you, you borrow some of the stocks and then promise to sell them back later at a different price, something along those lines. So it always has to have the actual shares involved. But if you do it as a bet, you can be completely independent of trading or having to buy or borrow some of the actual shares. Yeah, you don't really have buyers and sellers in the event of the betting market because there aren't really shares. But I think what I also should mention is that if you have such a market, for example, the Donald Trump example is interesting. If you have people both betting and on true and false of this prediction, then there will be basically a ratio of those of these two options. Maybe it's 50-50. That me basically means that nobody knows if this is going to be true or false. And the meaning of this ratio is how likely is it that this prediction becomes true. And this information is useful to the markets because that's pricing in future events or current information. If you have that for basically resources with wheat or corn, maybe we have a food shortage in the future, then it would be good if we price in information that people know that basically determines how likely is it that we will have a food shortage in the future. So this way, basically, we gather all the different information that all of the different people that are participating are gathering in their own experience and in their own education compressing all this information into one into one crowd you basically crowdsource crowd, this, yeah. yeah you basically crowdsource this information and you have one number which you can look at but let's say for example you are a farmer that knows that we are going to have a food shortage of corn or whatever but you are broke so you can't really put much into the into the prediction market. And this way, even though you have very high information because you are very close to some of the disasters that are involved in the potential food shortage, then your signal is still very, very low, even though it's a very, probably a very high signal. But you don't have to bet your own money. You can also get a loan. I guess in a Bitcoin world, yes, that's pretty risky. But if you are so close to the source of the information, then it could make sense to do it. And yes, the interest rate would also be pretty high. So you have to be really sure that you are correct or else you are losing a whole lot of money. That's true. So if someone has really good information but is broke, he could still go to some, even on a Bitcoin standard, he could go to some banks or, yeah, Everyone will be a bank, so to anyone who has enough, has enough Bitcoin and, and he could share the information with that person. If the information is really that valuable and, and, and high signal, then it would be easy to convince someone to get out a loan. And this is basically, this is already insuring yourself against the 
food shortage then. Yes, exactly. And then if you already have a loan, then you could also already invest this money to maybe also prevent the food shortage. So if you bet the right way, then you could... Oh, yeah. So it's a bit tricky to explain. Yeah, there is a way to do it. <laughs> But isn't that killing the incentive? Yeah, that's basically... Yeah, that's basically then the other way. Then you would not be betting on the food shortage, but you would be investing to make a future profit because you know that all the other farmers, maybe they don't know, or they didn't invest as much as you did, and you then you are then you basically gain market share on the whole thing. And then you can make a huge profit. And that's your your incentive to do that. So, for example, if you know there will be food shortage, but you have no idea how to prevent it, then you would bet that the food shortage will happen. And if you know how to, pre to prevent it, then you would bet against it and invest in invest against it, right? Or basically, yeah, yeah. I think that that's that's pretty much the way. <laughs> but uh, what if I don't have? But what if I don't have the money to prevent it? Then I could go to some Bitcoiner and show him how I would prevent the food shortage. And then I would say, you see, all the other people are betting for food shortage. So there's a whole bunch of money that we would get if we prevent it. There's the incentive to, to realign that as well again. Yeah, but it's maybe on the other end of prediction markets is if you don't have any resources to maybe prevent the food shortage, you can also bet... Not to make a profit, but to make a loss intentionally. So you, if you have the bet there will be a food shortage, then you can intentionally bet on true so that the majority of participants bet on true and the ratio basically is a huge difference, so maybe 90 to 10. And the farmer that wants to prevent the food shortage and wants to make some money off of that can bet on false and this way you can intentionally put money into the prediction market to try to influence the outcome to incentivize the farmer to bet on the other option that has a very low ratio to make a profit because he is going to know the prediction isn't going to come true there isn't going to be a food shortage because he prevented it. So you not only have the chance to take out a loan, but you can also bet on the other option to prevent it. And then, yeah, basically what you described before. But also uh, other people can put money into the prediction market to try to influence the outcome, to make the profit for the farmer bigger, to incentivize his, mm -hmm. him even more to prevent the food shortage. So basically, if you have money and you want a certain outcome, you would ask yourself... I want that certain outcome. How do I need to bet to incentivize the outcome that I want? Yes, Good. exactly. So Bitcoin, for example, has incentives that are very fundamental, that that are very, yeah, for one giant system, so to speak. And with prediction markets, we can really design very detailed incentive systems for very specific cases. So that's some, is that a good comparison? I don't know. I yeah yeah I think that fits pretty good. You you can do pretty fine grained things with it. You can because if you have a free prediction market, you can do all sorts of things. Okay, let, let's go into some of the more scary ways that this could take. So, for example, what if someone wants to incentivize people to hunt your head? So they say, oh, I want to incentivize people to bet against, let's say, who do we want to take? Let's just take Donald Trump. Yeah. Or may, not, maybe let's do someone who's, who's not charged with any emotion in the public. Maybe just some neutral. Let's just say your neighbor, innocent neighbor. What if some evil person wants to incentivize the death of, of his neighbor? So, so he, th that person could bet on the death of his neighbor. What, like, how is that good? What would happen then? So uh, if you make such a bet, right, you, that's the one thing. Then the second thing, you have to get people betting on it. 
you have there first there are speculators and then there are people who want to influence the outcome, right? So the people that influence the outcome have to go against the speculators. So if you want to try to incentivize the murder of your innocent neighbor, then you would have to put in so much money to basically counteract the effect of the speculators. So the speculators... Hold on, there's one, one other thing. If you have predictions that are easy to influence by, by a group of people, then I think there would be a pretty low incentive to bet on those things because people know this is pretty easy to influence because it is pretty difficult to predict, basically. So the incentive to participate in bets that are easy to influence is very low. Yes, It's, it only makes sense if one is of the opinion that this person really should die. Or really the opposite is also could also be the case. If everyone wants to keep this man, this innocent neighbor alive, then they will bet in exactly this way. They will try to influence or may also speculate on the market and try to incentivize other people to not murder him and also to keep him alive. And then we get back to insurance companies. They can act on this prediction market and they could provide security services in the anticipation of making a profit on this prediction market because they influence the outcome to keep this guy alive. <laughs> What would be a useful case, let's say Julian Assange? How could that act out? Maybe let's play through some scenario. Hmm. Then now we have to predict how, to, how this prediction would go pretty interesting <laughs> yes let's just run through some imaginary example how this could go um, through one path so okay so maybe let's say that most people want to keep this man alive because they want to know the information and they want to appreciate him yeah they want to appreciate him and let's say that most people want to reward Julian Assange for leaking those files because those files are important for the public and then Julian Assange should get the opportunity to make a profit off of that. Let's say we have the prediction Julian Assange is alive after a certain date, after the well, is alive after the leaks happen, of a certain amount of time after the leaks happen. I don't know. Let's take a few years from now. Okay, okay. It's, Julian Assange is alive after a few years from now. Then, okay, this is difficult. Which option would Julian Assange bet on? If he bets on true, so he is alive, then if everyone else bets on false, then he would make a profit, a huge profit. He gets rewarded for his leak. That means that speculators... I think that means that there should be more people that want to influence the outcome... Then there are speculators, so that yeah, so that the people that want to influence the outcome can go against the speculators and can outbid them, basically. Yeah, this is pretty complicated. So if you want to if you want to incentivize that Julian Assange stays alive until 2030, you would bet on Julian Assange is alive false, because then there wouldn't be such a big profit if they if he would get murdered yes yes if you want to incentivize that so you would basically bet on the opposite that you want yes exactly that's pretty much it yeah and if you have to go against the speculators so if you speculate and want to make a profit off of it you would have to predict is he going to be alive yes or no is and that's pretty much what you do but if you want to incentivize you pretty much pick the opposite option of what you actually want to happen. Yeah. But, but then if you, if you realize that there are more speculators, so you can't really influence the price and other people also can't because mm. they'd rather speculate than keep him alive, then that's, that would pretty much mean that the market determined that it is not worth it to keep him alive, to incentivize Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To incentivize other people to keep him alive or the other way around, right? So this would mean that people would rather appreciate their profit on his death 
rather than keeping him alive. Yes, exactly. Pretty sad, but wow. yeah, that's the market. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think would be the the ratio on that? For example, on this bet, because maybe if enough people are putting like tiny amounts because they just want to mm. appreciate him, they can influence the bet without losing too much. Yeah, I think that's where it maybe goes back to Bitcoin a bit because if we are on a Bitcoin standard, then maybe the incentive to make profit isn't as huge as it is now. Mm -hmm. Maybe then yeah, the desperation. Yeah, maybe people act then a bit of a different way to reward people for doing this. Yeah. And I think if you bet on such fucked up bet <laughs> for profit... Then <laughs> you probably won't be able to sleep. <laughs> there, there is probably a tiny fraction of people on Earth right now that will be able to sleep again after this. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a high cost to to put in in on that as well. So I think many people would give in like a, a tiny bit, which would add up to a lot in favor for Julian, and and many people would probably not even partake because it's. Because they're not emotionally involved in it, but still wouldn't be able to sleep if they would profit from his death. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is, maybe someone gets wind of someone who bets in the wrong way and then they get a prediction market on them. <laughs> but that would be a whole mess. Who knows what happens, really? But wouldn't the market build an equilibrium around that pretty fast? Yeah, that's true. I guess short-term volatility and then long-term yeah. stability. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this, is, this is so interesting. What is the principle of the neutral judge and why is it even more important than the principle of property right, the, the libertarian principle of property rights? Oh, interesting. Most libertarians don't really know where property rights really come from. They pretty much assume property rights are given and you should believe in it. But if you analyze it and you know about the neutral judge principle, that basically means if you have two parties that disagree on something, then it makes sense. We have a few options to, to solve this dispute. Either you can fight it out or you go to a neutral judge that then decides for you and you agree in advance to basically agree on the decision of the judge. And what is really important here is that that judge is neutral and isn't influenced by either one or the other party or some third party that wants to influence it because then it would be pretty easy to influence the decision. But if you really think about it, if you are one of your, the, the disputing parties, then you also have the incentive to pick a neutral judge. So you don't want to have a judge where you know that it has a bias against you. You would rather have a judge that has a bias for you, but then the other party would have the equal opposite opinion. And that's why both parties logically want a neutral judge. And What is the incentive for yourself to have a judge that is neutral rather than being biased for you? I guess the incentive is to solve the dispute because if one party gets wind of the biased judge, then the dispute isn't really solved. So both people have to believe the judge is neutral and then only then can the dispute be solved. Because if one believes that the judge is neutral, then he doesn't believe the judge's opinion. And that wouldn't make sense. So there's always an option, even if the first judge you picked, let's say you're not happy with that, even though you picked the first judge and you still think it's not neutral, then you still have the option to open a conflict on that. So you can go to another judge with that, right? Yes. Yeah, but then you would bounce around all the companies that do conflict resolution. But yeah, I guess there are going to be edge cases because people are corruptible and judges are going to be people. So, yeah. <laughs> I think the most important part is that there is the option to go even further with that because that keeps the judge in check, yes. the judge you pick in the first place. And as long as that option is there and not just a theory, but really available, it could easily be done, then 
the incentive to to pick a neutral judge is really really um really great yeah yeah but i think yeah. too about rights then we have now the neutral judge principle now if you have a dispute if you have two parties that disagree on the ownership of something then they can go to a judge a neutral judge and he can decide who owns this thing and that's where property rights basically come from in reality that's how you can think of it i think Are some judges more neutral than others? <laughs> uh, I don't know. How can you do that? I guess you would really have to say, is one judge more corruptible than the other? Yeah, I guess so. It's always just an idea that someone is striving for, right? Because every judge has some sort of personal, let's say, belief systems that, that always go into the decisions. For example, if a judge is vegan, Yeah. Then maybe it's not the best judge to go into some animal-related dispute or something. But on the other hand, the only thing really matters is if the judge has beliefs that really touch the subject of the conflict, right? So it doesn't matter if he has any beliefs at all, but rather than does he have any biases regarding the case. So I think that's sorted out as well. And, and also it's incentivized for a judge to get more clients, more jobs. He's incentivized to work on being more and more neutral and to rid himself of more and more biases. So may maybe judges will be incentivized to, I don't know, reach spiritual enlightenment, seeing good and evil as, as just being. And there is no black and white. It's everything just is. Reaching the ultimate neutrality. I don't know if that's... <laughs> yeah, but I think as a judge, you pretty much have to see things black and white because you have to make decisions on one or the other. So it's in this direction, but yeah. It, Not to the yeah, extreme, it's, but it's, yes, it's, he is incentivized to do exactly this, yes. To rid yeah, himself to, of To bias. become non-judgmental. Yes. Uh, to really condense down to the situations or to the applications of judgment that are the bare necessity. Yes. So to be, judges will be the most non-judgmental people probably <laughs> <laughs> in private life. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> to bring in some some emotional dynamics in, in here as well into, into this conversation. Okay, so maybe to wrap up that the property rights come from the neutral judge. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Come from having a neutral judge. Yes, basically. So, and the problem right now is that we don't really have neutral judges because the state is a monopoly and the state currently acts as the judge and as the judge of everything. And because he is a, a monopoly and doesn't really have competition, he really can't be neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Who judges the judges? Yes, exactly this. <laughs> you think if a god exists, do you think he's a neutral judge? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> he has to be. I'm saying it a bit playfully here, but I think the whole concept of the neutral judge can be explored on a very philosophical basis. I'm just realizing that now talking to you about it because about a week ago, I was first introduced into this principle. So it's just starting to unfold in my psyche. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. So the principle of the neutral judge, to wrap this one up, there is in the book that you recommended to me, which is called, and I will put it in the show notes as well, The Order of Freedom, The Only Principle That Can Save the World by Oliver Janich, which is all about the neutral judge. In this book, he gives an example of how you can prove to someone that this principle is true. Do you remember how that goes? I think, yeah. If we have a dispute, we too, and if we agree on, I decide who is right. You wouldn't agree to that. That's basically, that's the logical thing is that you wouldn't agree to that. We you both would want to go to a neutral judge. It's self-evident. And the cool thing is that you can bring it, like if someone disagrees with the principle of the neutral judge, you can say, okay, this is a dispute. I think there's a principle of a neutral judge and you think there isn't a principle of a neutral judge. So... 
if there is not a principle of the neutral judge, as you are deciding, then it's okay if I decide. True. Yes. <laughs> and then and then the other person is in a checkmate. Yes. I found that was a, a really cool philosophical proof of that, a logical proof of that, and uh, maybe helpful for all these for all the enthusiastic orange pillars out there who can bring that in into their arsenal <laughs> of <laughs> rhetorical <laughs> uh, skills. Yes. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you would add for this episode? I think we have a pretty bright future in front of us. If we think long term, I guess short and medium term is pretty, we don't know, we don't really know what happens. But if we think long term, we can imagine ways in which the society can function without force and without coercion, without state, without inflation. <laughs> I guess that's pretty great. Yeah. Yes, I love that you're bringing up that point to really, that's a great point to end the podcast on because that's really what uh, my emotional state was after reading that book as well and diving into that it was really like, oh my goodness, the magnitude of the evil that is on the planet right now is beyond what the mind can fathom. But the magnitude of the goodness that's in front of us is also way beyond what the mind can fathom. Like going through all these cases that are explained in the book and in future episodes, really proving this principle over and over again. And how to me, it's like a, another rabbit hole, maybe not as life changing as the Bitcoin rabbit hole, but it's highly underrated. Yes, it's and, a huge thing to wrap your mind around once more. Yeah. So if Bitcoin is hope, hope to you, then diving into the principle of the neutral judge, it will multiply that for you because it interacts with each other so, so beautifully. Thank you very much for your time, for explaining these concepts. I would be not comfortable yet explaining these, especially on English. And yeah, I'm very honored to have you here, Torsten the legend, <laughs> the <laughs> prediction market guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Is there anything where people can find you or are you, do you want to stay anonymous contributor for now? Um, currently, I'm really anonymous contributor here. Maybe I'll go public, maybe not. We'll you don't have to worry about that at this point in time anyway like if at some point in the future you decide to uh, you have to do just a few calls and we will upgrade your trust score within our network right <laughs> yes <laughs> really fast this is the cool thing this is the cool thing that trust can be stored as well mm. but that's maybe a good cliffhanger for the future episodes alright bye 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 thank you very much I thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe so you can find the next episodes. Also, I can recommend to check out the free peer-to-peer -peer coaching platform SBC, Spiritual Bitcoiner Circles. The link is in the show notes or my link tree slash BennyBTC. Bye-bye and be the change.